searching. Isaiah chapter 66. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the great privilege it is to open up a book and to know that it is your truth. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for giving us uh, the confidence that we need to understand its uh, meaning and for your spirit to be our teacher. And Father, I'm asking that you would allow the emotionalism of today, and, and there is no doubt that, and, there, and rightfully so. You've done a great work in this church. You have allowed people to be faithful. You have redeemed lives. You have restored families. Father, we're grateful for that. But we're not asking or looking for emotional responses today, Lord. We ask for spiritual ones. We ask that You would do a work in hearts, not just ears. We pray that You would allow Your Spirit to have a free reign in this sanctuary. And that He would not only teach and convict, but that He would comfort. I pray, pray, Father, that You would give me the grace I need to preach. I pray that You would uh, meet the needs I have in Christ. I pray for those that hear. I pray that, Lord, that they would hear that it is Your Word, as we will see in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians. But I, I pray, Father, that they would understand this message is not a man's opinion. It is Your Word. It is Your truth. So I pray You'd discipline my tongue to make sure I don't get in the way of that. I pray that You'd guide me. I pray that You'd help me preach with authority and compassion. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Thank you. You may be seated. Isaiah has been used by God to deal with the Jews as they come back from Babylon And there is an attitude among the Jewish people not dissimilar from some in religion today. That God is impressed with things that we do. God is impressed with things that we build. And so we better build it nice and build it great and we better make sure we're doing everything just as God would like. Many people today, as a matter of fact, we could say most people, are concerned about what other people think about them especially young people. The term peer pressure means something. It means that there are those that have influence on our lives and they expect things to be done a certain way. They expect us to dress a certain way, to listen to a certain type of music. And if we want their acceptance, we want their approval, then we adapt to what they like or what they want. And this is not uncommon. That is why in many people's lives, joy or despair rises and falls on the acceptance of or the rejection by others. They want him or her to accept them. And when they do, they feel elation. But when he or she rejects them, there is despair. Why is that? Because we care what other people think about us and we want to be accepted by others. But what about what God thinks? What are we doing to be accepted by God? What are we doing when we realize that there's only one person that really deserves to be the one in our, the forefront of our minds when we desire acceptance? To be accepted in the Beloved. To be accepted in Christ. That's before God. And while the promise has changed, we don't have to sacrifice and we praise the Lord for that, God has not changed. The promise of a relationship with God, that sins can be forgiven through a blood covenant, That's changed. There are no bulls and goats being sacrificed. Praise the Lord for that. There has been one sacrifice accepted by God, Jesus Christ, cross of Calvary, accepted by God the Father. 
He went into the grave. He didn't stay in the grave. He came out of the grave. And the power of the resurrection is indwelt in those that believe on Him. And praise the Lord for that. So we praise God that the way of forgiveness has changed, but God has not changed. He says very clearly, I am the Lord God. I change not. And His expectance today is as it was in the book of Isaiah. And here's what he said to Isaiah. There is a certain group of people whom I favor. There is a certain group of people who I look upon, who I bless, who I dwell with. And it is those who are poor, of a contrite spirit, and who trembleth at my word. Religious Israel needed to hear this. Now I know that God designed the temple. Solomon built it. David assembled the material. It took seven and a half years and over 150,000 men to construct it. Magnificent structure. Plated in gold. Cherubims and engravings put into its side. It was something to see as you entered coming into that city and seeing the temple there on the hill. It was absolutely beautiful. And the Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 that God dwelt there. He showed His glory there. Matter of fact, let's look there real quick so that you can see this. Because there's an important truth here. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Many of you know verse 14 by heart. God is answering the prayer of Solomon. That if His people, which are called by His name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek His face and turn from their wicked ways, that He will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. But He says in verse 16, For now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. And as for thee, if thou wilt walk before me, as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, and shalt observe my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom, according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler in Israel. But, but, But if ye turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, that's his word, that's his law. If you forsake them, which I have set before you, and shall go serve other gods and worship them, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land, which I have given them. And now look, and this house, which I have sanctified for my name, will I cast out of my sight. If you disobey, if you reject me, if you uh, turn from me and you seek other gods, you think you need other things, this temple that I've just promised my presence in, I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. In other words, it would simply be nothing more than a life lesson of what could have been. This house which is high shall be an astonishment to everyone that passes by it, so that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and unto this house? And it shall be answered, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. In other words, they knew better, and they forsook Him anyway. If you would go with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm, Psalm 50. And I want you to understand what God is saying in verse 1, where he says, heaven is, my foot, or, excuse me, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. He told in Isaiah 66, he told the children of Israel, what are you going to build me anyway? Where are you going to get the material? Everything you bring to build the temple or build your religious structure, I made. My hands made them. They were already there. We see a little bit of this truth in Psalm 50. Look at verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings, to have been continually before me. Now look at verse 9. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is what? 
mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Don't you bring a sacrifice to me and think that you, oh, it's my, go- my bull, it's my goat. No, it's mine to begin with. I, have, I own all of them. Don't think that you're bringing something that's not mine. I, I, I'm not taking anything that belongs to you. I'm not taking a bull out of your house. I'm not taking a goat out of your house. That's not yours to begin with. It's mine. And he says here in verse, uh, verse 11, I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. Look at verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. This is what God's saying. If I were hungry, I wouldn't go to you because you have nothing I need. But I have everything you need. I don't need you. I don't need your buildings. I don't need your religion. I don't need your works. You need me. Everything in your life that you need that is good and is right is sourced from God. And so he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. This is what he is saying to the children of Israel in Isaiah chapter 66. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? There is no place of my rest. You can't do anything and say, okay, now God's going to bless me because of what I did. But God in His great goodness, beloved, said this, you're not going to find me in religion. You're not going to find me in sanctuaries, ornate, in all the religious tra- uh, 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 tapestries. You're not going to find me there. But let me tell you where you will find me. And God in His goodness does not say in a building. He says in verse 2, and praise the Lord for this, but to this man will I look. This person. That means that There are hearts of men and women. God will be found. Well, where? He says, three three things, poor, contrite, and those that tremble at His Word. Jesus had told the woman at the well in Samaria that they that worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We know that God's Word is truth. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus prays to the Father and says, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. And so we know that to worship right, we need the Word of God. The Word of God makes very clear what we need from God. And that is this. The work in our hearts to help us understand one very simple truth. Without Christ, we are poor. Poor. Now, of course, we're not talking about financially, but you're going to need to understand financial poor to understand the truth of this verse. What does it mean to be poor? It means to be needy. That's what it means. Now, I'm not talking about today where we have needs. In America, we need a car. And so we go down to the lender and we say, I I cannot afford to buy a car. I need to borrow some money. And the lender says, well, show me your ability to pay me back. And then we show our ability to pay them back. And they say, okay, we can do that. Because we're going to give you something, but we want paid back for that. And you prove that you can, and so that you work out this transaction. That's not being poor. Because you're paying back that debt. You with me? Being poor means this. You have a need... You can't afford it. You couldn't pay it back if you wanted to. And you need someone to help you. We get the word charity from this type of love. It's translated that way in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Why charity? Because charity means this. To give without any expectation of return. We use the word still to this day in 2020. Isn't your Bible wonderful? When you talk about charity, what are they talking about? They're saying, oh, no, no, I'm doing this for charity. I don't want this back. I, I want to give this. I want to meet your need. I'm so glad God did not say a beggar. He said poor. There's a difference. God doesn't say he wants us to come begging to him. 
Oh, no, no, I want you to beg for salvation. I want you to beg for my mercy. That's not what he said. But he did say this, I need you to acknowledge that you're poor. Because in order to get charity, you have to be humble enough to say, I have a need. In order for God to be able to display the the, the kind of love that he gives, the recipient has to understand what kind of love it is. And we don't go to God saying, God, if you'll just grant me some peace in my life, I promise you I will work the rest of my life for you. No, that's just a, that's just a, a transaction. That's you saying, I can pay you back. You can't pay God back anything. It's charity that comes from God. It is giving completely of and from himself. But you're not going to ask for that if you're not poor. But see, being poor, that hurts our ego. Because if you think about it, too many people in life, they, they know they're needy, but they don't think they're poor. They don't really think, Brother William, that they have nothing to offer. They don't really sense the urgency of the need. They're, they're not willing to humble themselves and ask for help. But God said, unless you're poor, I can't bless you. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Many people are willing to admit they're needy, but not willing to admit they're poor. Look at how people live their lives. They got everything in their life going, and everything for the most part, listen to what they say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Everything in my life, for the most part, is going well, but I need to be saved. Well, what do you mean for the most part, then? Salvation is not the the final piece in your life to finally allow everything to come together? No. Without Christ, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Everything you've done up to this point has done nothing to bring your Creator glory. Everything you do falls short of the glory of God. And that's why you were created. You were created to fear God and to keep His commandments. And you've fallen short of that. There's nothing in your life that is going well if you're not saved. It's all distraction. All of it. No. The person who realizes that they're poor realizes, I have nothing. All of the things that I have in this life are nothing. They're going to burn up. They're temporary. They're going to go away. I have nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling because I finally come to the place where I realize The only thing I need is Christ. I'm poor. I don't have anything. I have nothing I can offer. And for those that would presume to say that my life is pretty good for the most part, except I need to be saved, I would say, read your Bible. Ask God to reveal yourself as He sees you. And when you do, you'll find out your life is not good, quote-unquote, for the most part. You are poor, you are wretched, and you need Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, we see an example of a man who was not poor. Take your Bible and turn there with me, please. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. And seeing the multitude... What time are we typically done? Okay. All right, I won't. Amen. <laughs> but just for the record, I was told not to worry about it. All right? Verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set... I, I love that phrase, by the way. This is Jesus we're talking about. When he was set. Amen? Like, he knew what he was getting ready to do. He got into his place, and he was ready. Amen? I, I just love that Jesus preparing... To preach. Jesus was praying to teach a lesson. Anyway, he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And the Bible says in verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. For theirs the kingdom of heaven. You don't get in the kingdom of heaven unless you first are poor in spirit. You don't, you don't come to the Lord with things. Amen? You have to be needy. You have to be uh, 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 a pauper, essentially, is what we are. We have nothing apart from Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, you may not be poor financially, and that's nice. Nothing wrong with having money. 
but you can be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means this, that when you open up my heart and you open up my soul and you open up my spirit, I am needy. And there's only one that can meet my need, and it's Christ. And by the way, if you're saved, you still ought to be poor in spirit. Amen? Without Christ, you can do nothing. We need Him for everything. But over in Luke chapter 18, we see an example of a man who didn't necessarily believe what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 9, the Bible says that Jesus spake a parable unto them which trusted in themselves, quote, that they were righteous and despised others. Now, you better mark it down. Those two always go hand in hand. It's not enough to be self-righteous. When you're self-righteous, you despise others. When you think that, well, look what, what I have, and what I have is better than what they have, careful. Because Jesus said in this parable that there were those that trusted in themselves. This is why it's hard for rich men, rich women to enter into the kingdom of heaven. By the way, read your Bible. Some of the richest people on earth were God's children. Abraham was one of the wealthiest men in history. Amen? There's nothing wrong with having money. It's okay to say amen to things that are true, okay? There's nothing wrong with having money, okay? God blesses people with money. Praise the Lord for that. I think it's great. Nothing wrong with that. But back in Jesus' day, there were people like this this day. They say, you need God. Well, I don't need God. It breaks my heart. My grandfather was this way. My grandfather was a multimillionaire. But he didn't need God. Everything he had, he worked for. He earned. And God would not bless me if he didn't love me. And obviously God has blessed me. Look at everything I have. Look at everything I possess. And Jesus said, you're putting your trust in the wrong things. Don't trust what's around you. You can only trust who is above you. And so, here's a man who trusted in himself, in his righteousness, and he despised others. He looked down at others. Notice the next verse. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or... What a happy coincidence. I happen to have an example right in front of me. Or even as this publican. Let me tell you what I do. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. In other words, I have enough to earn God's favor. But the publican, verse 13, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, because that's where the problem was, his heart but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be what? Why would he ask for mercy? Because he knew he needed it. He needed mercy. If there's any way to be accepted, it's going to be not because of anything I have. It's going to be because of God's mercy. God, be merciful to me. A what? A righteous man. No. No. A sinner. Amen. I'm glad for that because if I had to be righteous to get God's favor, I'd be in trouble. But I am a sinner. But that's who God saves. Amen. God, God doesn't want you to be perfect. He doesn't want you to be religious. He doesn't want you to be... To, if you could just string some weeks together where you live like a Christian, that way you can show God how sincere you are. No, He just wants honesty. I'm poor. I'm needy. I'm a sinner. I'm nothing more, I'm nothing less than a poor sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. There are those today that have no thirst for the water of the Word. Why is that? Because they have too many other things that are supposedly quenching their thirst. Anyone ever seen an alcoholic before? Tragic. Tragic. And they know it. This is, this is what the, this, the, the most sad part is. They know it's killing them. They know it's destroying them. The best thing for them would be to take a drink of something else 
but they reach for the alcohol instead. They know it's harming them. They know it's going to kill them, but they reach for it instead. Why? Because their, their desire is so strong that they are going to have that to quench their thirst. Beloved, it is no different than people who know they're lost, know their need of Christ, and they continually choose and they reach for something else. They know their sin. They know their lifestyle. They know their disobedience. It's going to send them to hell. It's, going to, it's disobedient, but they reach for it anyway. You say, well, yeah, but the alcoholic has put themselves in a position where, they, where they're controlled by it. Exactly. It's the same way with sin. You are in bondage to sin. You are addicted to sin. It's your nature. It's who you are. It's in your DNA. And what you need to do is stop trying to attend AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Stop trying to quit drinking. What you need to, spiritually, what you need to do is turn to Christ and say, God, save me. And He will. And He will. See, the reason that there are people that don't reach for the water of the Word is because there's so many other things that they think is quenching their thirst, but in reality, it's killing them. But when you're poor, and you're needy, and you're going to die if you don't get that drink, then you do anything. But here's the good news, beloved. You don't have to do anything to reach this water. It's, already, it's nigh unto you already. All you have to do is accept it. That's what a gift is. And needy people need gifts because we can't afford to buy it on our own. And salvation is a gift. Why are people rejecting to eat the bread of life? Because they're consumed with other things in this world. Their appetite is for things of this world. Beloved, you must understand your true condition. You are poor. You are needy. You need the water of the Word. You need the bread of life. There's nothing in this earth that can satisfy your need. They want you to think there is. There's not. You have to understand, you're poor and you're needy. Nobody seeking the spotlight can be fully used by God. No one trying to be part of it can be used by the Lord. He says, I'm going to tell you who I favor. I'm going to tell you who I bless. It's the poor. Secondly, it's not only the needy and the poor, it's the contrite. But notice it's not just contrite, it's contrite in spirit. Back in Isaiah chapter 66, words matter and this verse matters. God said that even this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit. Now you know people that have been contrite a time or two in their lives, right? But that's not what this says. It doesn't say who know how to be contrite, who have been contrite once or twice. No, of a contrite spirit. It means their attitude, their way of life. They realize that they are needy and they need help, but it has an effect on them. They are poor and they're broken because of it. That's what this word means. It means smitten. It means lame. It means broken. What is your sin and the reality of it done for you. Say, well, I feel bad about it. That's not contrite. That's not the the spirit of a contrite heart. It means to feel or express remorse, and it's affected by guilt. Say, why would God want me to feel guilty? God doesn't want you to feel guilty and live the rest of your life guilty. God wants you to know your need. You understand the difference? When you realize that there is a God, and He did create you, and He created you on purpose. You're not an accident. You're not a, you're not a biological mistake. You matter to God. He created you. He allowed you to live. He gave you a soul. He gave you a spirit. And He gave you a body. He gave you a mind. He gave you an emotion. He gave you a will to know Him, to love Him, and to obey Him. And He wants you to understand that, that you are without Christ and with your sin in your life, you are apart from Him. And you have broken His law. You've broken His commandments. But that knowledge should do something to you. It should, it should cause us to weep and say, I, Lord, I, I realize that I'm a sinner and I have a great need. I can't do anything and I'm broken because of it. Contrite spirit means not a sorrow over present consequences, but a sorrow over personal condition. I'm not, I'm not upset because of the situation I'm in. 
I'm upset because of the person I am. How, how, could I, how could I not have this as a result? How could I not sin? My wife and I were talking to our daughter recently. An apple tree can only produce apples. Isn't that deep? Aren't you glad you came to church? Amen? Write that down. Apple trees can only produce apples. We have an apple tree in our backyard up in North Dakota. Because believe it or not, things grow in North Dakota, all right? During during the summer. I've not once ever gone to the backyard and gone, Oh, gin! Bananas! That never happened. Now I've seen some people come out of the nursing home that made me think they were bananas, but that's a whole other story for another time. I'll tell you at the barbecue. But anyway... That's never happened. Why? Because it's in its nature to produce apples. That's what it is. A contrite person realizes this. Of course I'm in this situation. Why wouldn't I be in this situation? Why should I expect anything else than this situation? I am just seeing, again, the fruit of my own making. I'm a sinner. Of course I'm going to have sin in my life. Of course there's going to be consequences. But for once, finally, I'm not broken over my circumstance. I'm broken over me. My environment's not the problem. I am. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you take your Bible and turn there quickly, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I love this text. Praise God for it. I, I, this is such a wonderful text on repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Look with me at verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed the repentance. For ye were, and if you, do, if you, if you mark in your Bible, I would underline these two words made sorry. Amen? That means something outside of you made you sorry. We call that conviction. We call that the work of the Holy Ghost. You were made sorry. But that you sorrowed the repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not the repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. There are two kinds of sorrow. You, I know that you're a well-taught church. You know this already. There's remorse, worldly sorrow. I feel bad I got caught. I feel bad about my circumstances. Then there's a godly sorrow. I feel bad about who I am. God created me and I've, offend, I, I, I've disobeyed Him. I realize my condition. I'm poor, I'm needy, and I'm broken. I can't do anything about it. This is what God says. This is what being contrite is all about. There is a repentance. There is a godly sorrow. There is the understanding that a seed must die if it is to give way to life. And there comes a time in a believer's, or excuse me, a sinner's life where they realize, I need to be born again. There's nothing in this life that's worth it. There's nothing I can, I can handle and say, well, Lord, I'm going to come to you with, with this. You can't do that. You need to die and start all over. That's an that's a, that's a easy way of saying what being born again means. Time to start all over. And you need God for that. You can't do that on your own. You're, you're, you need the Lord for that. And so the poor, they that have a contrite spirit, you remember what it was like to be contrite? You remember what it was like to be broken? One of, the, one of the most difficult things in a church that preaches the truth is the comfort that comes with acknowledging you're lost. Because there's a sense of accomplishment. And if I could say it this way, you, you, you understand where you are and at least there's that relief, at least I know where I stand before God. But don't allow yourself to be comfortable there. Say, well, well I, I, but I want to be sure... Because if I'm not sure, I, I, I don't want to make a false profession. I want to encourage you with something. Listen closely. Jesus Christ has not one time ever in history of mankind made a false salvation. Not once has He ever tried to save somebody and failed. Now, people make false professions, but you have to stop thinking about the, that yourself and you have to start thinking about the One who said He would save you. And I'm quite confident the man who can walk out of the grave having resurrected himself has the power to change your life. You turn to Him. You believe on Him. You repent. You turn to Him. He'll save you. You'll not be ashamed. You'll not be disappointed. You won't be let down. Why? Because He's the Savior. You don't, have to, you don't have to fear a false profession when your faith is in the Savior. He's never made 
a false salvation. And so you have to say, I'm done. I'm done. I need Christ. Third, poor, contrite spirit. And third, they that tremble at God's word. I want to say on a personal note that I read this in my devotions and I was so convicted by this sentence because I began to think, Marcus, when was the last time I trembled at God's word? When was the last time I realized that this is the revelation from the Creator God and that it's authoritative and that it means what it says and He says what He means? And I I'm so familiar with it. I have, I have probably six or seven Bibles in my office. We have more than that at our house. My daughters have a Bible. My wife has a Bible. You know, I've got one there. They're on the shelf. The Bible is so accessible. But there's a danger there. Because it becomes so familiar, we forget it's not just a book. It's a holy book. It's a book that is set apart from all other books. And the author is who sets it apart. This is not a creed or confession that a Baptist church put together centuries ago. Beloved, in your lap is God's Word. God's Word. I mean, His mind put on paper so that we would would understand it and know it. God said, that's the third thing. Poor, contrite, and those that tremble at my word. And I was so convicted by that. When was the last time I trembled at the word of God? I've seen this take place. This word trembleth is only found six times in the Old Testament. Five have to do with God's word or the Ark of the Covenant. Six times and five have to do with Ark of the Covenant or God's Word. They tremble. It's a fear. It's a reverence. The only other time it's used in the book of Judges, chapter 7, you know the story, it's Samson. Excuse me. That's not true. Sorry. Gideon. Sorry. He's in Judges too, but just a different chapter, okay? Gideon calls the army together, and the Bible says this. Tell the men that uh, if they're they're afraid, they they can leave. They can go back home. That's the other time the word trembleth is there. Why is that? Well, I mean, let's be realistic. If the Midianite army outnumbered you, there'd be some trepidation on your part as well, wouldn't there be? There would be a sense of being overwhelmed. There would be a sense of saying, this is, this is too much. This is, this, is, this is more than I can handle. I don't mean to make light or make fun, but my wife, we went with my mother-in-law and father-in-law to the Grand Canyon years ago. And uh, Jen, she had no desire to go up to the edge. Why? It was too immense. It was, has anyone ever been there before? It, it, is, it is an amazing thing. You think that the Grand Canyon is big. If you've never been there, you can't understand the vastness of it. And people have actually fallen into the canyon. Still, in modern times, how is that, how is that possible? Well, a, a book that uh, I had read or was referenced to at least, it says that they walk up to that edge and their depth perception just goes away. They, just, they cannot understand or comprehend the magnitude of, of, of the Grand Canyon. I, I'm, I will always fall short of an illustration to try to help you understand trembling at God's Word. But it simply means this, that you realize how great it is. How the magnitude of God's Word, the authority that it brings. What else could we do than tremble? Not afraid of God, but afraid of all the authority and magnitude behind who He is. God is love, and I praise God for it. God is just, and God is merciful. I praise God for it. God is also wrathful. And deservedly so. He's holy. He can't tolerate sin. Why would I want Him to? You understand the magnitude behind the Word of God. This means those that reverence God's Word, those that fear God's Word. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And to approach the Scriptures without wisdom would just be simply foolish. 
God's word is not a collection of historical stories. God's word is not some religious fables that are put together to teach us some moral lessons. God's word is just that. God's word. It's his truth. It's his mind. It is the revelation of God himself to us. You don't believe me? Read John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What what does that Word mean? It means communication. Jesus Christ was the living Word. Jesus is God communicated to man. And God in His goodness said, I will give them a written Word. This is God communicated to you. Not not a church. God, the Creator, communicates with you. And how do we handle that? What do we do with that? If we got a letter from a judge or from the the sheriff's office, we'd respond right away. I don't want to get fined. I don't want to get a ticket. But we we read a verse or two. We read God's word, and we say, "Well, it's uh, it's you know, I can do that later." The Bible says that God is, deserves our glory. The Hebrew word is kabod. It means weight. God deserves glory. The weight, the significance. A simple illustration help, to help that is this. You're driving down the expressway and you're doing roughly 75 miles an hour. And you see a red, white, and blue car. Now in, by the way, it's a police car. All right. That's the illustration. It's a police car, all right? I don't want you to just think it's just some random red, white, and blue car, all right? Stay with me. Now, in that car, you're driving. You're listening to music. You're listening to a talk show. You're listening to the fan, perhaps. What a blessing that was to be able to get on the turnpike in New Jersey and hear Joe Beningo. I hadn't done that in two years, so that was a blessing. But anyway, you're listening to the fan. You're listening to 880. You're listening to music. You're talking to the person next to you. You're eating a sandwich. You're eating a bacon, egg, and cheese. I'm telling you, there's so many things I've missed. I want to tell you, you're drinking coffee, whatever you're doing, okay? But when you see that police officer, suddenly you put your foot on the brake. Why? Because your knowledge of his presence suddenly changes everything you're doing right now. That's what it means to give God glory. When you realize that there's someone there that can pull me over and give me a ticket, and I don't want that, I'm going to change how fast I'm going. I'm going to change the lane I'm driving in. I'm going to stop what I'm doing and focus on this. That's a, it's a silly illustration, but it's exactly what it means to give God glory. When you remember God sees everything, you're going through life, and you're going through your decisions, and you're doing what you think, and suddenly the realization comes into your heart and your mind, God sees, God knows. And you change the way you are living because of the presence of God. That's how we ought to be living every day of our lives. Giving God the glory. People don't do that unless they're trembling at His Word. People don't do that unless they really believe God is who He says He is and He's as authoritative as He says He is. And he is. You know a way you can tremble at God's word is in church. Did you know that? Take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're turning the fourth corner here, so you just stay with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is such an amazing verse. Look with me, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of who? Us. Ye received it not as the word, but as it is in truth, what? The word of God. And Pastor Graf gets behind this pulpit and opens up the word and preaches to you. It's not the word of a man. It is in truth the Word of God. 
Now that means that the pastor behind the pulpit, whoever it is, John Graff, Josh Fryman, Jason Demlo, you fill in the blank, whoever it is, better be preaching the Word of God. Amen? You don't get up behind the pulpit and preach your opinion and expect God to bless it. Amen. Praise the Lord. My sheep hear my voice. That's His voice. That means His Word. But you're in a church that preaches the Word. But if you sit in that chair and think, well, that's just what He thinks. Careful. Because the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Paul to record that this church, which became an example church to all that believed in Macedonia and Achaia, received the preaching, not as it were the words of man, but as it was in truth, the Word of God. The Word of God. So what do you do with preaching? When the invitation comes, and because preaching demands a verdict, that's the whole point of preaching. Preaching demands, choose you this day. I'm presenting before you life or death, therefore choose life. But you've got to do that. So how do you respond to that? Well, you know, it's it's just another message. It's another service. We go out to the lobby and we talk about the game. You don't walk out of a sanctuary talking about football when you've trembled at the Word of God. Again, doesn't mean to be scared. It means to be reverential to understand the magnitude of what's going on. For 2,000 years, God designed that His people would assemble. Psalm 89, verse 7, For God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. To tremble at God's Word. We can't walk in here casual and expect God to dwell among us and bless us. He told us, I'm only going to favor, I'm only going to look on the poor, the needy, the contrite, and those that tremble at my word. They know who I am and they know who they are. In Acts chapter 17, don't turn there, just, just hear me out. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, the Bible says that the Bereans were more noble than those at Thessalonica because they searched the what? The scriptures, not the internet. We live in a day and age, and I, it saddens me to say this, and I have an actual examples of this. This isn't just some illustration to try to help prove my point. We are living in a day where YouTube videos are more authoritative than a chapter and verse. Tell someone, here the Bible says, well, here, watch this video and then tell me what you think. I just gave you Bible. What do you mean, watch this video? I just gave you the Word of God. But we don't tremble at God's Word. We're moved with emotion. We're moved with things that we feel and see. But the Bereans were noble. Why? Because they searched the Scriptures to see whether those things were so. And you know what they found out? Those things were so. Those were not the words of a man. It was the word of God. The same thing the Thessalonians found out. Why does that matter? Because Romans 10, 17 says very clearly that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? The word of God. That's why it was so important that Timothy be taught these young people up here on the front row. Praise God for young men on the front row. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. But why is it so important that you learn the Bible? Why is it so important that you learn the Scriptures? Because the Scriptures are able to make them wise unto salvation. That means there's a goal that we have for them. And so we don't teach them how to recite things and say things just for, to fill a class in children's church. We teach them the Scriptures because the Scriptures are what's going to be able to make them wise unto salvation. And the Word of God produces faith. So we teach young people the Bible. You start studying this out, you'll start finding the Word of God everywhere. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. I'm not a discerner of the thought and intents of the heart. I can't. I'm not that smart. I can't be. Brother John, if, if I was asked to discern you, I couldn't. But you know what is? The Bible. The Bible is sharper, Gavin, than any two-edged sword. It pierces. It divides asunder soul and spirit. It lays bare your heart, your spirit, your motives, your attitude. And so you come into church, you, you better believe you should want the, the Bible preached. Because what's going to expose what we need? The Bible. That's how powerful the Word of God is. I can tell you as a pastor, uh, we need the Bible. Amen? People come into us for help. I would not know how to help them without the Scriptures. I wouldn't be able to know how to discern someone. Someone comes in and says, well, we are just talking about this recently. Well, well, Pastor, you know, I'm a Christian, but... Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says this. Well, that's just your opinion. No, actually, here's the good news. It's not my opinion. It's God's Word. But see, that doesn't matter to a lot of people today. 
because they don't tremble at God's word. This is just another book. It's what, it's what the pastor uses to, to find one of his messages. Oh, God, save us from that type of attitude when people come to church. It's not just another message. It is God's word. And pray, by the way, praise God for preachers who don't preach sermons. Amen. By the way, that, that's why you have preachers in pulpits still have disqualified themselves, but they're still in the pulpit. You know why? Because they don't tremble at God's word. Well, doesn't the Bible say that you can... Yeah, it says that. Well, why are you still doing it? Well, because, you know, the bottom line, I want to. We need churches that tremble at God's word. John 17, 17, Sanctify them by truth, thy word is truth. If you're lost here today, I want you to know, and I say this with love in my heart, you are poor. You are needy. But I have good news for you. Uh, the giver of salvation has not run out of salvation. Amen? His, uh, th- th- there, there's a great truth, and I love this, that, that God's ear is not too heavy that it cannot hear and his arm too short that it cannot reach. Amen? Say, well, I've rejected God and I've sinned. and I, Welcome to being lost. But that's exactly who Christ saves, the lost. He came to seek and to save people just like you. You say, well, I feel in bondage to my sin. The good news is you can be set free from your sin. That's the whole point of being delivered, being saved. But you're poor and you're needy. When was the last time you were broken over that? Being willing to acknowledge that you are poor and needy, that's good. But being contrite in your spirit, in your attitude, in your life, that's who God says He blesses. And lastly, those that tremble at God's Word. There is so much application here for both lost and saved. And I'll trust the Holy Spirit will make it where it's needed most. Father in heaven, thank you for the text that you've given before us. And Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm asking that you would do what only you can do. We are needy of supernatural work. That means salvations. That means uh, people making, making things right with you, perhaps with each other. Father, you know the needs and you know what they are and we're asking that you would be pleased not only with the spirit in which I preached but also the spirit in which the church will respond. I pray that you would do a great work now. I pray that we would not wait until Wednesday night. I pray that we would not wait till the afternoon service. Father, if you spoke to someone's heart, I pray that they would do the right thing and they would respond accordingly. God, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you-